Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Brian Skersha. And today we're talking about Dome Keeper. Developed by Bippin Bits and published by Raw Fury, this game was released for the PC in September 2022. Yeah, and Josh, you brought this one to my attention. Um, a really cool mix of sort of tower defense and a, you know, extractive mining sim. Uh, it is the two-phase game I never knew I needed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I kind of heard about this game through some indie dev circles, um, just because this was kind of like a a smaller scale studio. I think there were three people who worked on the main parts of this game. Um, they developed it out of a Ludum Dare per, uh, prototype that was successful, and they got a lot of good streamer coverage, which if you're in the indie dev scene these days, you that's like your marketing right there. You actually don't really talk to the press until the press actually wants to talk to you. They're a bit of a lagging indicator of popularity streamers are what get your game to people who want to learn about games and they loved this game so it was discussed quite a bit and a lot of people wanted to go check it out including myself yeah i really like this uh studio's remit of uh you know an indie game developer based in dresden germany with 2d pixel art games that are not limited by genre um and uh, yeah that, that tracks for this game for sure um, they only had one other game on their website that I was track or that I saw um, called Of Mice and Moggies, which is like a logic game that uh, also came from a game jam. Apparently, the game jam game was called Fluff and Stuff, which I uh, or Fluff and <laughs> Snuff, excuse me, which I think is uh, <laughs> probably catchier. Either way, uh, <laughs> I like this trend of game jam games becoming products. It, it, it seems to be a trend for the indie games we cover. Yeah, I mean. I'll say we cover the winners. There's a bit of a survivor bias over there. The Fair. Game Jam games that are good enough to merit further development and that become big enough to get become full games and have like publishers and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, but it's a good way to experiment around and try new genres, uh, new experiments. I mean, uh, Game Jam is typically only a weekend, um, which is compared to the six months you might spend prototyping a game normally is uh can be fun you can play fast and loose try things out and really kind of like focus in on a core idea something this game did fantastically well yeah i was gonna say play with genre or play with game not defined by genre um speaking of which do you want to give us a quick intro of uh what exactly dome keeper is well, there's a little intro cinematic that happens with every game you play, where there's a peaceful planet and your giant meteor of a spaceship lands on it, squishes some local animal life, and there's your dome. Uh, you have to protect it from waves of incoming monsters while mining out resources below the dome in order to upgrade your dome and make it, you know, more powerful. Yes, the dome. The dome is the most important thing in the game. Your I guess primary task is keeping it alive, but your next most important task is, you know, extraction. Uh, you are basically here to take all the, the loot. I guess the loot is uh, iron, cobalt, and water, which will be used over the course of your game to, you know, upgrade, to keep you alive, to find and upgrade gadgets, and eventually um, steal the all-important relic and uh, take out the enemies that are or the aliens that are trying to keep you from taking it away 
Yeah, presumably the reason you're on this planet is to find this mysterious relic. And once you're able to unlock that and bring that back, there's a final showdown, at which point your all-powerful relic wipes all the monsters out. Um, And then you win. Yay! It's all peaceful (laughs) with everyone dead. I was going to say, sort of dark undertones here, yeah? It's like, extract, kill, move on. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I don't know. It just, uh, oh, man, it's a, it's a nature's fighting thing. back against us. I'll show them. <laughs> exactly, right? It's um, one of those themes you don't think about too much when you're playing it, but you look back at it and you're like, am I the good guy? The answer is no, not really. <laughs> yeah, you're the baddie, um, for sure, in this game. And, it's, uh, you know, it's okay. Because it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Sometimes being the baddie is fun. Uh, One thing I did want to just uh, point out before we get into the game is the you mentioned the title screen and the opening cinematic. But one thing popped out to me about just booting up this game, the Godot engine. Um, This is a game made with Godot. And now that we have uh, the recent press releases of Unity, uh, (laughs) Godot obviously taking a much more prominent center stage role in the game development scene yeah Um, i've been learning i i've been working with unity for seven years now and i've ditched it for godot now well how about that so this was this partially an academic experience for you or was it mostly just you thought it looked cool i just learned it was godot (laughs) okay um i mean what attracted me to the game yeah it did look good i really liked the pixel art for it which was fantastic um but for me why i suggested it as a book club game was that game loop that core game loop was so tight and so polished yet so simple like i felt it was a very refined sort of um You know, they took the raw material of games in general and they just like distilled it down to like, here it is, dig, fight, dig, fight, and you get Mm -hmm. lost in that loop. Yeah, we've talked about game loops in a lot of our podcasts to date, but I think, as you mentioned, this is probably the shortest and simplest. Um, I mentioned up top that it is a tower defense combined with mining simulator, but yeah, I, I think it's... My dig and fight is is probably the the better way to describe it. It's it's really interesting. Those mining portions are quick and frenzied, and the defense portions come faster than you think they will. And they have this thing where they you keep wanting to do like one more loop. Like um, you get up just in time to fight the battle, and you finish the battle. And you're like okay. I, I, I found some minerals back there. I'm just going to go get those minerals. And you go down there and you grab those, you send them back. And then you're like, oh, I, I can, um, maybe I can hold out and spend a little more time and get these minerals. And then I'll stop. Um, oh, here's the combat. I'll just get through the combat. Oh, you know, wait, I could, uh, I could play for five more minutes. One more loop here. Uh, like it was a very engaging game, engaging loop. So here's the thing is I, I, for my first three rounds of this game, I exclusively played at night after my kids were asleep. So I literally did not play a round of this that I didn't finish um, because it was that like compulsive. I, I just had to see the end of what I was going to be doing, whether I was defeated or whether I was going to win. I had to see what the next you know wave had for me or what loot I could get in my next calm period. It was extremely uh, well done in terms of that one more round mentality i think part of that like um it wasn't just the digging and the fighting but the upgrade too like things were balanced so well that there'd be a lot of times where you're like oh man if i just get three more iron 
then I get this baller <laughs> upgrade over here. I better just play another five minutes, and then I'll go to bed. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. But to that end, maybe we should talk about each of these phases in turn, just to sort of um, talk a little bit about what you're doing from moment to moment. So mining, pretty simple, right? You know, in this game especially, so just three elements, as we as I mentioned uh, up top, iron, the yellow cubes, power your most basic upgrades, cobalt, purple triangles, heal you help with some more sophisticated upgrades, and water, blue spheres, that uh, help with other upgrades, I suppose. But there's a lot more to it than just that. Yeah, I mean, I thought of the iron as gold the whole time because that's what everything cost on your dome was gold. (laughs) And you said this was simple digging, and I actually, as someone else who has done a dig underground game, you know, like over a decade ago, but at the same time, (laughs) uh, really appreciated what they had there uh, because you're digging through different biomes that have different levels of, like, HP for the rock. It takes longer to dig through deeper biomes. But even within a biome, you'd have different um, densities of rock. Like you'd have sand kind of density that was super easy to dig through. And you'd have like brick walls that were very long to dig through. Uh, So even just digging a maze um, had a lot of like moment-to-moment choice in it. You're like, what's the best way to get out there and explore? Do I really want to try to dig through all this brick or do I try to like take a longer detour around and hope that this sand can just get me through? Uh, so even just, just like that simple digging stuff, there was like interesting decisions you'd have to make and make quickly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very good observation that mining difficulty varies not only with the depth which varies the color of the rock you're digging, but also, as you mentioned, the visual density. And I think it it is sort of along with that risk versus reward. Do I go wide at the top and try and get like a lot of resources immediately quickly? Or do I go deep? Because generally speaking, there are more um, lucrative deposits the further down you go. Oh, but it's a problem to go farther down too, because these resources... Um, they are not easy to get back. It's not like picking up a coin in Mario. You are lugging that thing all the way back to base, and you quickly weigh yourself down the more gold you have or the more iron you have with you. Now, I think this is probably actually the the point at which I realized that this game was special when I realized that that carry weight feeling of tethering was going to be such a big part of the experience. Like, you're, mm-hmm. you're minor, as a jetpack, or you know, in the case of another character, gravity manipulation powers. We'll get to that later. Um, but it is affected by how many things you're carrying at once. And you know, Josh, you talked about juice in several of our our podcasts before, and I feel like mm-hmm. this tether weight thing is a perfect example of something that is just tuned so well and feels so correct um, based on what you're carrying and the weight that it puts upon your character that it is immediately like extremely effective in conveying the risk reward and what you're leaving on the table versus what you have to, you know, try and lug up to the surface. It's just extremely good mechanic from my perspective. You really have to like take a guess. Like um, there's been so many times when I've been hauling it back up to my, um, up to my dome and you know, I'm hauling it back. I'm going vertically. If I, keep on going then i know the monsters are starting to come to my base (laughs) and start doing damage which is not easy to repair in this game like that cobalt is a rare resource the rarest of them um 
or I can drop a couple of the uh, iron bars that I have, which lets me go faster, but then those iron bars fall down because the most efficient way to dig is straight down, more or less. I mean, if you if anyone is a, a serious Minecraft player, they know about the sort of matrices that you have to dig in order to make sure you see just enough of the rock to know if there's a deposit there, but also like, you know, not waste your time. And to your point, Josh, you know, it, it helps to be able to have those tunnels straight down and then left and right alleyways, so to speak. And yeah, leaving leaving some iron on the table while you have to go back up and like, boy, I'm, I'm just not going to have enough for that next upgrade. I hope I can hold out. It's uh, definitely effective. It's a really nice risk reward loop. Um, and there are ways that they mitigate it mechanically as well. Yeah, you can upgrade your carry weight, your uh, your movement speed, and your um, your drill power too. That's kind of like your main economy upgrades. That's what I think of. Uh, you were talking about the juice of hauling the resources back. Here's another thing that I thought was a great little touch. Besides the hauling, um, the resources that you're carrying with you float in this kind of blob behind you. But instead of being like transparent to physics or whatnot they still have active colliders going on with them so you kind of got to manage your cloud of resources while you're flying up and still pay attention to like you don't want this iron bar to get stuck behind this one corner over here you have to make sure you're flying and keeping it up and everything it's um again it's keeps you involved in the moment to moment it's not like oh i have to lug resources back it's like you're thinking about it and you're engaged with it and it's like there's no necessarily a rest period where you're like okay here's the chill heading back to base kind of thing they still make that uh, involving activity but it's not just the resources you can discover down there there's random fun things uh the most important of these is artifacts or gizmos that you can uncover um and bring back to your base unlocking new uh, new combat capabilities or mining capabilities or um, you can just shred the gizmos and get extra cobalt for more health later on. Yeah, some of these upgrades were one of the are definitely the most interesting things that would sort of flavor a run for me. Like, for example, there were two different types that you could get. There were ones that would sort of live in the cellar below your dome that would help you with consumables or you know allow you to uh, I guess there, there's all kinds of different ones, but they would allow you to get a different type of, of resource consistently, or they would uh, produce a tool for you to take down to the mines. And there were others that you could bring with you down into the mines, such as uh, my favorite, uh, the teleporter. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you got this one, but I loved the teleporter. <laughs> they had some really interesting ones. They had a teleporter that could, um, I think... You could get upgrades that could take yourself and resources back with you, and then you could carry it around, bring it around. They had a lift that would automatically like take resources from the bottom to the top, which was great. Also gave you a move speed bonus when you were moving up through it, which was fantastic. Uh, you could buy you could buy like um, explosive charges to clear out large areas at once. A little friendly drill bert dinosaur that did some digging for you um all kinds of different things for that like resource extraction resource the condenser that gave you free water every once in a while 
I got Drillbert the first time I saw him, but then after my my first time, I don't think I ever went for poor old Drillbert again. Aww. I just I, I didn't find. I think it was just a little too much babysitting with Drillbert for me. <laughs> um, but 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 a cool idea, regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to your point, these these artifacts, you know, you only get maybe one or two per strata of um, area that you are mining down into. I think there's one gizmo per strata. Yeah, that makes sense. And I um, I was. You know, always obviously you're always happy to find them because it like basically is the thing that is going to determine your quote unquote build for a given run, mm-hmm. uh, aside from the upgrades that you're producing. And it is definitely the thing that if you continue to upgrade it, is going to be the most effective. And one thing I really liked about this game is those artifacts not di- or didn't just change the way you played, but they also changed the way you prioritized upgrades. Because as soon as you got one of those, a whole new upgrade tree opened up for it. Yeah, each of these gizmos has their own upgrade. And like, um, there's the different upgrades we talk about. There's probably, I think, four basic ones you start off with. And then you, as you get upgrades and gizmos, I think you can have up to three or four upgradable gizmos in the latest patch, which I think came out last week. So, hey. Um, but that really like uh, gives you a lot of choice in what you do, and by presenting you with different upgrade options, like you don't get to choose, you get your choice of two when you bring a gizmo back. So you, out of the, all the gizmos they have, you don't really have like um, your choice of what you want there. You don't get to pick; you get to select from a couple of choices the game gives you, uh, which it does flavor the different runs really well. I think. And, and we've talked about a few that help with mining so far, but there's also ones that help with the combat side of things. And maybe we take a beat to talk a little bit about that side of things. Because, you know, at a certain point, you're going to get a beeping sound appearing as you're mining. And that is going to signal you that it is time for combat. So as we go into, you know, you, you obviously, once you hear that, you sprint or float or boost back up to your uh, your dome and hopefully you've gotten an upgrade or two to help uh, prioritize or you know improve your laser or whatever it is you have on the outside of your your dome to defend against the fauna coming after you but there's also artifacts that can improve that as well to just describe it simply the dome combat the defense portion of this game plays out as you scrolling your laser across the top of the dome in a semicircle pattern in order to quickly dispatch with a laser any uh, enemies that are charging towards your dome. The controls for the offensive combat portion can be simplified down to left, right, and shoot. Where left and right makes your gun shoot at a different point on the arc or point at a different point, and then the shoot button, you know, sometimes you have more than one, but it does what it says on the tin. Um... So it's it's really interesting, I think, because the gun is so slow, especially at the beginning. I was going to say, it starts off slow, but you have the opportunity to upgrade it or, you know, augment it. Yeah, for sure. And you can make it much more speedy as time goes on. Um, but again, that means you aren't upgrading some other things. So it's like, oh, man, I just need to get a little faster with that because it does start off Like, it probably takes four or five seconds to get from one side of the dome to the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to your point, that is at at higher levels of raid that you are going to be facing too long. So you have to have a way to either 
make sure that you're not being attacked on both sides at once. You know, maybe there's an artifact that you've gotten that can keep the other side at bay. Or you've upgraded the speed so you can handle one, then quickly flip over to the other. Um, from For my money, this is a very much a DPS-focused section of the game. You want to get that DPS on your, your laser up real fast <laughs> and make sure you're, you're taking out um, enemies as quickly as possible. Because if you're wasting time once you've gotten there dispatching an enemy, um, that's time you cannot spare. It takes long enough just to get to a point where you're targeting them. Yeah, for sure. You- there's no like dilly dallying over here. There's always something you need to do with the combat. Um, besides the artifacts, which can flavor your run while you're doing it, um, I want to talk a little bit about the different dome builds you can choose at the beginning of the game. Because uh, there were a new, couple of new ones released with this latest patch. I uh, got to try out one of them. Uh, for, you choose an offensive and a defensive capability for your dome. Uh, the offensive one, the laser, is kind of like the standard. That's what the game was built with. Uh, there's a sword dome which has a speedier sword that you whack melee enemies with, and you can fling the sword out to fight some of the flying enemies with a complicated, like, fly-by-wire sword sort of thing. Um, And then I just played with the artillery dome, um, which, that was an interesting one to go with. Uh, You launch explosive shells at the ground in an arc, and you have an anti-aircraft gun as well. I think there might have been one more offensive dome. Uh, defensively, you can choose a basic shield. There's a monster repellent, which just makes the waves take longer in between um, in between getting to you, and there's an orchard one that I hadn't tried out yet. Yeah, I, I've only really experimented in depth with the dome laser setup. I unlocked the sword one, but I haven't played with it very much. So yeah, to your point, there's a lot more to this game than just what's on the surface. And that surface premise is so good. Like the dome and the laser, that's an, that's enough on its own. Like there's there's plenty of game there. And it, it just strikes me that this is a very generous game and that all these extra upgrades really keep it interesting over the long haul. I think the laser and the sword were very interesting to play those back to back because some of the a lot of the enemies that are hard with the laser are easier with the sword and then vice versa. Like those little flying guys that are easy to just t- uh, swat out of the air with the laser. It becomes this whole like timing system and uh, control system with the sword. Whereas the guys that hang out like um you do you remember those little like. I call them the popcorn guys, the uh, swarms that come and jump up. Yeah, the tiny swarm, yeah. You can just point your sword in one direction and watch them all skewer themselves on it while they jump up there, which was <laughs> satisfying. Um, but like, it can deal heavy damage to anything nearby doing melee attacks, so it works pretty well for that. But again, that's like, what defensive upgrades do you choose? What gizmos do you choose down the line? Uh, it does offer some interesting ways to work within the same uh, constraints, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting, especially because, as you said, like these hordes don't stay static. You know, you start off with a standard sort of guy that will come up and melee your dome or whatever defense you have in place. Uh, then the horde, which is a bunch of small guys, and then a flyer, which will shoot a projectile at you and will quickly dart between sides of your dome, obviously trying to harry the minimal movement that you have early on and then finally you have the big flyer um which is you know once you start to get a little more serious they they send the big bads after you Hmm. and i i think it's worth mentioning 
and I don't know if, uh, how much you, you went into this, but when you play the other characters, they have different enemies, too. Yeah, there's a surprising amount of enemy variety in there. Like, um, I don't know if it's based off of the weapon you choose or how it happens, but I'd end up on different planets with different color palettes at different times, and they all look fantastic. Uh, but, like, the enemies would be slightly different or they'd be very different, and... It was interesting to kind of like try to learn things again or learn what enemies do what. Now, see, I was actually going to ask you about this because uh, the first time I noticed being on a different planet with a different palette was when I tried a new class, which is to say not the default engineer, the mechanics of which we've been describing so far in this podcast, but the assessor, which is the next class that you will come across or unlock most likely. I think that's the next option you have. And... That was when I first noticed a different sort of palette and enemy class and planet type. But I don't know if it's necessarily dependent on that. Uh, do, do you know? It's not dependent on the class because uh, I remember when I just played as the engineer, because the assessor came out like a week or two ago, I think. Um, but when I was playing as the engineer, I remember three distinct uh, worlds and color palettes, which, you know, that's great to see why it's... Um, or it's a great, like, cue that, hey, you're in something new here. It's like, oh, where's my purple and yellow over here? This is all green, huh, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's interesting. Um, okay, good to know. And uh, it's worth mentioning in the fall of 2023 that this game is still very much in active development with a lot of new mechanics and features being added on a, a pretty frequent basis. I think a few came out while we were playing the game for this podcast. Yeah, um, I think the it might have even gotten out of early access with the patch I was alluding to a couple uh, week a week or two weeks ago or something like that. I think they even added a multiplayer in with that, where you can have like um, two people doming it up. Oh, so there's the multi a multiplayer aspect. That's at least what I saw on the trailer. We should have played that before this cast. Maybe we'll write a quick description or. Uh an addendum in our on our website or something if, if we find it to be especially compelling <laughs> <laughs> fair fair um but yeah i i mean all that is to say is that this is a game with uh it is replete with features right now and it it seems to be continuing to add them at a pretty solid pace yeah i know um it's gotten a lot of community support uh like lots of people are enjoying the game um I feel like, especially you have a small studio, if you get a a game that people are liking and you can keep adding content to it for quite a while, especially if you've got such good bones on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is this is one of those games that feels to me almost sort of Spelunky-esque in its like possibility for um, mechanical foibles that will continue to sort of, you know, have interesting things to throw at you. Um, not to say that there's like perhaps that much interaction or you know mechanical depth in one direction, but the fact that there's these two different phases and they keep having the ability to add you know additional upgrades, artifacts, etc., game modes even onto it and player characters, it just it strikes me as something that is ripe for iteration. Oh, for sure, for sure, and I mean um. I just took a quick look at the Steam page. They have 7,500 reviews, which probably means roughly on the order of, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 sales or so. Uh, So I think that's going to be 
doing, you know, they're doing well with this game, and I think we'll be able to see continued development on it for quite a while here. Well, I, for one, am hopeful for that because, uh, you know, I like what I'm playing so far, and I'm, I think it's going to be one of those ones that I like continue to revisit. Um, especially because, as we said, there's, you know, the the main thing that I think changed my perception on what this game had possible with it was the class upgrade. Uh, you know, playing the assessor just for a quick round or two today, right before our podcast, after playing several rounds as the engineer, really opened my eyes to like, wow, this like this can work in much broader ways than I thought it could. Yeah, I just played the assessor this weekend too for the first time, and I was very impressed with it from a game design point like um it is not a direction i would have thought to take classes if i was doing this myself but it works so well and it changes the playscape of the game yeah absolutely um so i think it's worth mentioning perhaps we give a quick rundown of the engineer and then we talk about what differs in the assessor yeah Mm -hmm. so As the engineer, you have a drill, as you might expect. You arrive on your planet, and you can upgrade your drill. It does more damage to the blocks, but you're just sort of pushing up against walls and mining them in a straight line, and you have a jetpack, and that that jetpack is what delimits your ability to carry. So, you know, all of the upgrades and such that we've talked about to date sort of work within that framework. You're upgrading your drill, you're upgrading your carry weight, etc. The assessor has the powers of gravity on their side and (laughs) that is fundamentally different than an engineer yes very much so the assessor has um i i think of like two major differences from that the assessor has like a very slow drill compared to the engineer but what they do have is these bouncy orbs that can be flung off in any direction you shoot them in like not just you know, uh, orthogonal, north, south, east, west, but diagonals, any any way you want to go. And they bounce, they hit the rock, and they break the rock where they hit it, which completely changes how you dig through the game. Like, um, with the engineer, you're like, okay, do I turn left or do I turn right at this next block? The assessor, you're thinking of, like, terms of lines and strips and connections um because you want to be mining in a small area if you're trying to like mine out from a large a large line like for example the line immediately below your dome which is even more important as the assessor for different reasons um that takes a very long time because your bouncy balls have to go all the way to the bottom all the way to the top all the way to the bottom they're not going to make it more than once by the end of the game. Um, but if you have, like, you're going left and right in a narrow hallway, then that goes crack, 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 done. Yeah, so the, the point is to minimize distance between bounces with the assessor, because as you fling these orbs, the more they hit surface, the more bang you're getting for you know, the amount of time that you're mining. So it behooves you to sort of go uh, in a... You know, straight line vertical, straight line horizontal, straight line vertical, and just let the the bouncy balls, as as Josh said, um, hollow out the everything in between. And then, as you mentioned, once you get above that um, initial first pathway down, then you go back up. Uh, and it's very important that you have a clear line all the way back up to your dome with the assessor, because they have one other power that is incredibly important 
which is they can take any resources they have and send them in the direction you're facing, um, regardless of how many there are. Yeah, so instead of lugging all the resources back by hand like the engineer does, that schmuck, the assessor <laughs> casts a magic spell and you have like a floating globe of resources and you can just send them off in a direction. So if you have a straight line up to your dome, then you're able to like go to the go right beneath your dome, even if you're far beneath it, and fling your resources up and then keep working down at the bottom. Like, um, the assessor has a specific upgrade that draws a line underneath the dome, which, you know, you'd think that wouldn't be worth it. I'll just remember where the dome is. It's definitely worth it, because this flinging is so important. Yeah, super important. I, I've realized with this game that visual indicators the, are unlocked as upgrades because they are actually extremely worthwhile. Like, one of the upgrades for both classes is um, the fastest path back to dome. Um, which is to say, like, once you start to have an early warning that you're going to have a raid coming, it starts flashing a path that will get you back just in time to start the the defense portion of the game. And I was like, oh, I, I got this. I can clearly just intuit this. I'm a gamer, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and, <laughs> and no, no, you cannot. You cannot do it better than a literal computer can. And so you should buy that upgrade. What's That's an interesting thing about this game is, it makes you buy the UI. Like, yes, <laughs> that's crazy. I love it. But like, what game does that? Um, the first thing you want to buy is like your uh, proximity tracker, which tells you how long, how far away the enemy wave is from coming. But even things like how many resources do you have? You're like, oh, I don't know. They're just in a box here until you, you buy your resource <laughs> counter. How much health does a dome have? Uh, some, I guess. It does have like visual aspects like... Um, it shows you shattered glass, like cracks going down your dome's glass as it takes more damage. But like, no, I'm a gamer. I need my numbers. I need to know. Yeah. I take my money and give me numbers. It's funny that I prioritized the um, the dome health UI before I prioritized the resource counter or the um, the path back to base, where both of those were more important than the dome health UI for sure. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it, to your point, like the fact that they make you pay for it and prioritize which of those you unlock and when is an interesting choice in itself. And I think that like underlies this whole game's philosophy, which is you need to make interesting decisions about what path you're going down in terms of upgrades. Like every minute you're making an interesting decision in this game, which is crazy, crazy. You know, a thing I just thought about too with the dome upgrades is it's a way to reward skilled play as well. If you're like, oh man, I'm a master level dome keeper, player, streamer kind of guy, you can slightly accelerate your play curve by being like a few resources closer to the good upgrades, but you just got to know everything else about the game. <laughs> That's true. If you have like, I put this in terms of like counting cards, right? Like if you're a blackjack player and you can count cards, um, you don't necessarily need that resource counter on the side of your <laughs> your thing, uh, telling you exactly how many iron, cobalt, and water you have. Um, but I'm I'm not keeping track of that. I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> so, uh, especially if you're the assessor, like good lord, 
Um, that'd be hard to keep track of. Um, among so many other things this game does, is just one of the like small choices. You know, Sid Meier would be proud. Interesting decisions across the board. Oh, for sure, for sure. One thing I want to talk about this with this game, we alluded to it a little bit before, is the fantastic art and color palettes. Like, um, first of all, fantastic pixel art. Like that background you're doing the combat battles in, all of them are gorgeous. Like highly detailed great artist who worked on this game um i don't know her name but um i remember it was a husband and wife team who did the original and the wife handled the artwork uh so she did a fantastic job with that and the color palettes are very striking too absolutely and i think there's like a heavy heavy 70s sci-fi you know, a paperback novel cover aspect to it. Yeah. (laughs) The cover pages of old sci-fi things. Yeah. Yeah. It it looks exactly like that. And I think it, 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 you know, clearly I I would, I would imagine an inspiration for this. And um, as you mentioned, like the initial color palette, the orange or purple, yellow and orange. And then as you go down through the layers, adding in blues and greens and reds. um, And once you, change the planets that you're on they sort of iterate upon that you know it starts off green and blue on top and you know continues on through as you go down and it it's just a really well done art style and it's simple Mm -hmm. throughout all of it simple and so effective like there's just some art things i've noticed when you're down in the mines everything is a very low-key and dark palette except for things like resources which are high key high value kind of things like the iron resources sticking out or um like you're about you find where a gizmo is buried or something like that um or or the area around your dome keeper is illuminated and it illuminates the sides of the walls nearby you again with that uh, high key color that really provides a startling contrast or and then you go up the backgrounds um that you're working with they're not in the same like strict palette i mean they're like relate they're like a variant but they're they're more bright and high key and all the enemies are coming at you they're all black and the projectiles are straight white very easy to notice um but it like shifts from do from underground to above ground in a very effective way it really does it it keeps things high contrast keeps things visible and to that end i think it also does a really good job auditorily signaling these things as well um i don't know if you noticed this playing but i I, having just played a few rounds of the assessor i noticed a different soundtrack than compared to what was being played as the engineer. And I think that was really an interesting choice too, to to vary that on the, on the class given, especially because the music for the engineer was good, <laughs> like really good and varied. And like now we're, we're introducing this whole other aspect as, as the assessor and boy, like, um, I mean, the music in this game is fantastic. I think it fits the mood perfectly. I think it, especially as it shifts from mining to, um, defense is really well done. Um, and the fact that it's pivoting on a class level too, is just nicely, nicely handled. That class pivot was so well done. Like it wasn't, a expected, like, no, that's how classes should be. 
Yeah, because they're approaching it from an entirely different way. Like, if you're thinking about this, an engineer coming to a planet to mine, like, would have a different mission than an assessor who is, you know, despite the fact they're both trying to come away with a relic, they're taking two very different ways going about it. Um, one is assessing a planet for its value. The engineer is more methodical, you know, right brain, <laughs> making sure that they're they're taking the logical approach to it. It's, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate the fact that they decided to do that and that it plays out in the mood and feel of the game on a variety of axes. The engineer is the tactical thinker, and the assessor is the strategic one. Strategic, which yeah. is a weird thing to say about <laughs> digging. It's digging, right? But hey, here we are. I don't know. I always found myself like, all right, well, you know, I have an extra energy ball to throw out. I'm just going to throw it out at a diagonal on my way up, and I'm sure it'll do some damage. <laughs> and, you know, before before I knew it, like I had this cavernous hole right below my um, my dome, and with the engineer it was much more like a traditional mine you know your your minecraft finding diamonds style mine Mm -hmm. (laughs) assessor gets a little more crazy yeah agreed it's it's a cool a cool pivot and i can't wait to see what else is in store for us I, i think those are the only two available right now but um interested to see more i wouldn't be surprised if we saw continued development on this game for a while we can only hope. One thing that I really think this game did good, which I am in fact going to steal for my future games, is um, the varied color palettes. And I know, like I, I don't know no, but I have a great idea of how they do this. Um, is when you ha- you want to go from like your purples with the yellow highlights to the green with the I think they had yellow highlights there again, but you know, you go from palette A to palette B. Uh, what you do is you program all of your sprites in some grayscale or something like that, um, and then you just have a shader do a palette swap on them, so you can go from one thing to another. And w- I recently made Within a Dead City, which is another game that a lot of people have noted for its striking color palette, um, where it's like, hey, here we go, we have six colors in the whole game, maybe seven. Um, and I think that from a sales and marketability standpoint, and also from a you're playing this game for eight hours standpoint, um, hurts it a little bit because maybe after hour four or after screenshot four, you're like, oh, this all looks monotonous. But you throw another color palette in there and it's like, oh, okay, look at this. We got some great variety and it has all the palettes are well done. I mean, I have my favorites, but none of them are. There's not a clunker in the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think what they've done here is they put in the extra work to say, like, yes, we found one color palette that work. Now let's find the five analog color palettes that would, like, fill out an entire visual style for this specific thing. It's like the idea of not just developing one level for a game in terms of color palette, but an entire series of them, and then pivoting your color palette around that idea. Um, It's cool, and I agree with you that it looks fantastic in all of them. I think I have my favorites for this game as well. I think that initial engineer color palette is probably the strongest to my eye. But um, boy, they all, none of them look bad. <laughs> <laughs> all right, with that, let's dig up some three-word reviews. All right, 
I've mined my experience with Domekeeper, and my three-word review is extractive, addictive, unexpected. The premise of a two-phase roguelike mining colony simulator is compelling on its own, but I had no idea the extractive premise would lead to an utterly addicting gameplay loop. I can honestly say that every round I played of this game was a beginning-to-end single-setting session. And while its mining and defense sequences were the premise that got me hooked, the time management aspect was the key to keeping me engaged. Dig deep or broad, upgrade guns or drills, press your luck with that last load of materials, or cut bait and bolt home. The choices facing the player at any given moment are crucial to keeping things engaging, but this is never more keenly felt than during the moments before an oncoming wave. I highly recommend Domekeeper. 50% mining sim, 50% wave-based shooter, and 100% full of compelling player choices. Two thumbs up from me. Oh, very nice. Very nice. This game did come out of nowhere. I mean, the devs were unknown beforehand, at least to you and me. Um, and now, hey, they are someone I will be keeping an eye on in the future. Absolutely. Me too. Me too. All right. My three-word review for the game is Once More, Descend. Domekeeper is a small game that delivers. It has a tightly crafted core loop that keeps players engaged throughout. It has that just one more turn feeling that I associate with great 4X games, and I've often found myself playing for another 15 or 50 minutes longer than I meant to. The mining demands various strategies for navigating its depths, in the risk versus reward of trying to lug extra nuggets back to base is compelling. Its combat is similarly discreet in that enemies generally come in waves of one or two foes, necessitating split-second decisions about priorities. The entire loop of mining slash combat takes the precise amount of time it should. It's long enough that you always accomplish something, but short enough that you're always wanting to do more. It is a masterpiece of scope and design, and it's an inspiration to myself as a game dev. It makes it easy to say, once more, Descend. Yeah, totally agreed. Fantastic little game, and a little but growing, you know? I can't wait to see where this one goes, and I I think both of us are going to be on the lookout for uh, continuing patches and updates to this one. And it's going to be the kind of game where we could come back six months, a year from now, and be like, oh yeah... I'll get a quick hour of Dome Keeper in, and maybe it's two hours <laughs> afterwards. But like, I really appreciate a game of this. I feel depth and quality that you can appreciate in such small doses. Absolutely, I think that's more and more important to us as we, uh, you know, continually get uh, older, busier, more more children. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, with that, we want to say. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks who think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. (laughs) And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care and keep on digging.
One thing I really liked about this game that I think is the call sign of a good roguelike is the weird random shit you would dig up. Like, it's pretty easy. You play a game or two of this and you're like, okay, I got my resources, I got my gizmos I'm going for. And then one time you're like, what's this tree that's growing here? What's this cave? What's going on? Uh, and it's kind of like the figuring out how to get things working like that. I think that's what really makes this a roguelike to me, is this weird shit you come across. The tree was exactly the thing I was going to mention, because I found a seed, and I was like, what the hell is this seed? And I like carried it around for a while, and I just sort of left it on the ground somewhere, because I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is. <laughs> and eventually, it like started growing, and then at one point, when I was uh, traveling up with some materials, it grabbed a material and just sort of kept it. And I was like, well, it's just one iron. I don't need an iron. It's fine. Um, so I left it there. And then I found out later it had produced another iron. <laughs> the, the tree grew grew another iron for me. So, like, that was one of those neat little things where, like, uh, like uh, a mechanical wrinkle that you would never was never explained, never tutorialized, just sort of there. And that, to me, was why, like, I brought in the Spelunky comparison, you know? Yeah, no, I feel that. I feel that. It's like the... That's where I feel that this game could have... It could get even deeper with, like, these little uh, surprises or small little add-ons. Like, they have a pretty decent level right now. Like, you can find a cave that has cobalt in it. Um, you can find... I found a little squid friend at one point and I'm like oh here's a squid I don't know what's going on and later on I saw him lugging an iron back to base for me I'm like oh he's my boy I like him I like him <laughs> um, there's all kinds of stuff like that like I, here's the thing like there's a bunch of mechanics in this game that I don't really understand there's also like moss growing on the walls after a while I don't know if that's just an aesthetic thing or if that actually has some other implications to it but either way like I think it's it just shows like a care that this game is putting into like everything that's going on with regards to the way it's treating the environment that you are building and affecting. And that alone kind of excites me because it shows that there's a framework there for considering those types of things, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the moss does anything right now. I think it's just like quote-unquote light that gets down there uh, from your dome, but I could definitely see that being used in the future, but it does make the world feel more alive. It makes it like um, one of the things that you're one of the troubles making a digging game is that the underground is pretty monotonous. I don't know if you've mm. ever hung out in any coal mines, but my goodness, <laughs> they are very, very sort of locale over there. It's just like walls. I don't know. I did a haunted house in one at one point, um, but but it's like very. Um, monotonous so being able to add things like oh here's some moss and some flowers growing up here's tiny shadowy mushroom people hanging out in the background uh here's bioluminescent worms coming around like this game did such a i can't start stop gushing about the art style because like the world seems so lifelike even though 80 percent of the world was completely underground fantastic yeah. Yeah, it, it shows a world that is utterly alive, despite the fact that you're just tunneling through layers and layers of rock. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that, like, even, you know, juggernaut 
billion dollar game Minecraft is not done better to my mind you know? like, <laughs> <laughs> and that's saying something right like you're doing kind of a similar mechanical thing you're delving down you're extracting resources you're turning them into things to help you against the baddies but you know the fact that they care enough to you know every time you once more descend as you said um, you'll see something different and that that surprised me because I was like wait a minute I don't remember that like that plant being there or that bioluminescent Where fungi tree come or from? <laughs> yeah, exactly and that's that's exciting and the fact that like that is being done by this small team on this game that you know was born of a, a game jam is it's exhilarating you know I think it says good things about the fact that we have small projects that are doing exciting things in engines that don't suck <laughs> Yeah, this is kind of like a, I don't know, as far as I know, it's my new standard bearer for Coteau. I, I have to agree. Like, I don't know necessarily if there are games that we've played in Godot before, but um, this is a example that I have seen. I saw it on the splash screen, pointed it out, and now it is the standard bearer for me as well. One of the things that really impressed me about this game, as I mentioned, was the tightness of that game design. Like, there was no cruft to this at all um everything was a moment for you to make a decision even if it's a little thing like i gotta jiggle to the left or right as i'm flying back up so that i don't lose my iron over here um just wow very impressed with it um and even though it's not going to be like a 40 hour game for me maybe one day it could be i don't know i'm i'm happy to have a game that i can like spend several hours with decide that I've felt like wow that was really cool and I've enjoyed myself and be done just I think this is mostly a reaction to the fact that the last two games I've really heavily dug into were Baldur's Gate 3 mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the uh, Tears of the Kingdom uh. so you know like I, I only have so many like 60 to 80 hour games in me a year and I'm really happy that I can get like a fulfilling enriching conversation worthy experience in less time than that. <laughs> no, I totally agree with that. And even if I'm thinking about it, like um, I think the I I don't think I spent more than an hour, hour and a half on any map. Um, I didn't beat a huge map yet. That's the largest one. Uh, but like, I don't think the mechanics of the game, even if you extended the upgrade trees out another one or two tiers i don't think the mechanics of the game would support like a five hour game you know what i mean no and i I wouldn't want them to honestly like i kind of like the idea of this as a mission you know um i understand the folks that will do you know for what it's worth we talked about one gameplay mode in this we talked about um relic hunt which is you find the relic you uh bring it back up to the surface you win the game um or you defend and win the game plus. But there's other modes. There's prestige mode, is that what it's called? Where basically you you send resources back ad infinitum to your home planet. And you go for kind of a high score chase situation. And uh, maybe this is just the type of gamer I am, but that is less interesting to me personally. Yeah, I think a lot of people prefer a something with a more narrative structure beginning and end point rather than a high score kind of game uh that's yeah i i agree with that I, i'm the same way myself um but yeah like the game's mechanics were so 
right for the game's size and scale. Like, it just seems like this game was so intelligently designed. It's certainly designed uh, precisely. Yeah. That's a good way to put it, you know? Yeah. Like some engineer has some calipers on it being like, yep, this is how <laughs> big we should make these levels. Yeah, and, and for what it's worth, I think like tiny to small is the the right size of map for me. But that also just be like, that might be my mindset going into playing a, a game of this. And, you know, they accommodate that. So, um, kudos. <laughs> I will say I went back and played a small map after doing gradually larger maps. And I got to the end and I'm like, oh, is that it? Already? Can't I keep, can't I keep going a little more? So I, I actually, for the first time, didn't go straight for the relic and tried to dig everything else out, but I had already gotten all the resources, unfortunately, so I just had to win. Lame. So maybe I need to be medium and up. No, you should have. what you should have tried to do is win the game without having to use the relic superpower to, to kill all the aliens. I got close in one map. I was down to... The la- like I think I stunned the super bad guy and had like three other bad guys left. So it was like okay, <laughs> almost, almost. If I had a couple more <laughs> upgrades, maybe I could have pulled this off. Well, I think I mean there's an achievement out there, so you know, take a look at our Steam profiles. If one of us eventually gets it, <laughs> you'll know that we have truly embraced this addiction. 